And uh, I'm excited because this morning, um, you know, it's a Sunday morning, right? We get to worship together. And uh, something we took for granted for so long, just being able to be in person. And so to do that is really, really special. Uh, this is kickoff for a fall ministry cycle. And uh, one thing that I've just been encouraging folks and actually evaluating in my own life is just the priorities that we set. I think from the pandemic, uh, when, when suddenly you, you, everything was kind of the hard reset and you, we've slowly added stuff back into our schedule. And then, especially if, if your um, kids are school age, like two weeks ago, your schedule exploded. And, and this is weird. Like suddenly every day and evening feels like it has something back in it again. And I don't necessarily like it. Uh, you know, I thought that we had learned the difference between stuff we should do <clears throat> and stuff we need to do, um, but it's just so tempting to start throwing things back in. And so as a family, just trying to prioritize, as individuals, prioritize what do we need to do? And along those lines, I really want to encourage everyone, like when it comes to our relationship with Christ and with Christ's people, you have to make that a priority. Because we can see, it's so easy to see how that can get pushed to the sideline. Like, you need a Sabbath. You need to make, uh, you know, worshiping. You need to make Jesus a priority in your life. Because if, if the, the convenience factor has gotten um, so great, especially when, you know, we can be gone for the weekend and we can come back and we can watch the service later, um, I'm really worried as a pastor that that Sunday morning pocket, which was already being encroached on by all sorts of stuff, is just going to disappear for a lot of people. And so don't let that happen, all right? Uh, I'm not trying to shame anybody because they miss church once or twice or ten times this summer, right? But, but come on back. Like, find a way to make that a priority and a space in your life because you need it, and so do your kids. We started a new series last week called Can Do, and I've always appreciated Can Do people. They're like the ultimate self-starters, the, the make it happen, no matter what the cost or the amount of effort, the, all, the people you can always count on. And when I think of people in the Bible that are like Can Do people, the person of Nehemiah uh, comes to the forefront. And um, he wasn't a person who just waited for others to do what needed to be done. And Nehemiah helps describe who can-do people are in a godly and in a biblical sense. So very, very important. And last week we learned that they're people who trust and hope and rest in the Lord. They're people who show courage even when they're anxious or afraid. Can-do people, godly can-do people, take time to discern the Holy Spirit's promptings in their life. They wait for God's open doors and then they go for it. These are what godly can-do people do. And God uses those folks because they're agents of change for his kingdom. And we need them, we need to become like them more now more than ever before. Well, as I mentioned, in case you didn't notice, uh, things are still a little unpredictable out in the world there. And uh, I don't know if you thought that things would be back to normal now, that phrase, new normal, I think I started hearing it like a year ago, and I keep waiting for the normal to show up, right? 
It just all seems new, and it all seems unpredictable, and it's all unfolding, and it's the only thing that does seem constant is that it's going to be unpredictable. Um, and I read something this last week that struck a chord with me. We had, you know, the Great Depression that occurred in the, you know, 100 years ago, in the 1930s, or almost 100 years ago, and then, you know, 10 years ago, we had the Great Recession, and I just heard someone describe 2021 as the Great Resignation, because, like, everybody's quitting their job and starting a new career, or at least it seems like it. And that resonated with me because last spring, I started to, you know, people that were in my life started telling me, yeah, yeah, I quit my job. Well, what are you going to do next? I don't know, but something new. And, and like, these were people who didn't know each other, but I knew them. That was, like, the only thing they had in common, except as we would talk about why they were doing this, a lot of things uh, were kind of threads that ran through their lives, just frustration uh, or even just disgust over what they had to endure through the pandemic. A high level of burnout, I would say. There was sustainable pace. Was where there was no sustainable pace. I'm going to do something where there's a sustainable pace. Uh, I think folks had time to actually reflect in a space, a, ga- a time in their life where they actually could kind of take stock. And they're like, I am going to do something different. And no matter the short-term cost to them, they just decided that it was worth it. And so I know some of you are nodding your heads. You know people or you are one of those people. And so this sermon series could really help you. But even if you haven't made or been forced to make a hard reset in your life, it helps to be reminded of what we can do during uncertain times like this. And um, the danger becomes that you start to feel stuck. Now, I love do-it-yourself projects. Uh, it's actually, in a weird way, it's, it's kind of how I relax. I can actually see progress. You know, you start something, and, you know, occasionally you finish it, and you can feel really good because that one turned out well. But uh, something that happens almost every time uh, during a do-it-yourself project is there's a point that you just feel stuck. It, it doesn't go as you planned. Maybe you're obviously over your head. You can't quite find a YouTube that covers that particular issue or crisis that you're uh, encountering. And sometimes that feeling stuck even happens before you start. Well, a couple years ago, Home Depot came up with a new slogan that, that says, um, you know, Home Depot how doers get more done. I always thought that was pretty catchy, right? How doers get more done. So this morning, we're going to look to Nehemiah for some insight on how doers get more done. All of us can sign up for that, at least I think we can, right? We love to get stuff done. And we're going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, and last week we learned that Nehemiah was a cup bearer. And that sounds like a a really fancy waiter for the king. But it was actually more than that. A cupbearer in those times was like the chief of staff. And obviously, you're you're drinking wine to make sure that it's not poison, so you're you're like the secret service, too. I mean, it it was a very prominent, very high-ranking job in the king's um, palace. And so Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and they believe that Nehemiah would have also been, this is just a little bit of trivia for you, he also would have been strikingly handsome, 
like male model material. And we all know why. It's because ugly people don't drink wine, right? No, no, no. It's because, because the king is only surrounded by beautiful people and beautiful things. And so that means that Nehemiah was probably really good looking and also really expendable because, you know, if the king's wine had been poisoned, he would have been the first one to find out. So Nehemiah was granted position, uh, permission by the king of Persia to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And this would have been massive, like years-long, decades-long project. So when they you know, ask, like, when will you be back, I kind of think that was like a courtesy because yeah, it's going to be a really, really, really long time for Nehemiah. And he had the king's blessing, he had the king's resources, but even so, there were many challenges. At one point, uh, from the story, the, the children's story that we watched this morning, we saw that the locals didn't really like the fact that they were rebuilding the wall. At one point, they threatened violence, that we're just going to sneak into your camp when you least expect it and ambush you. And so while they're working on this huge project, they're also carrying around swords and spears, and they're doing guide, uh, guard duty, uh, really, really, really intense time. And just when things are starting to, to, to relax, this happens. This is Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read it for you. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Well, this is from Nehemiah's point of view. He's writing this, and he's not angry at the people. He's angry at their leaders the aristocrats, the nobles, the officials in his own government. And this is a serious complaint. You know, he actually calls them charges. It's, like they're, it's, it's almost like they're suing the government at this point. So as the governor, there's this group of people that bring this to his attention. And they say, you know, we got mouths to feed. We need food. Uh, there's no grain because there's a drought. Uh, we, we used to have extra money from... You could do work on the side if you had a big extended family and you could hire people out as day laborers, but that wasn't happening because all of our help is going to build the wall, to pull guard duty. It's kind of a government thing, kind of your thing, Nehemiah. And then they say, uh, y'all charge such high taxes, we're going into debt just to keep up. And it had gotten so bad that they're now selling their kids as indentured servants because they had nothing left. So this is one of those things that like never changes in the, in, the, in the course of humanity. You know, this is as old as people are. Uh, whenever there's an economic crisis or something that happens, uh, a drought, uh, a pandemic, whatever, 
there's a lot of pressure put on people, especially their lives and livelihoods. And these kind of circumstances usually, can I say always? I think I can say always. Always hit people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. It hits them much harder than it does in the middle or at the top. And families who don't have the resources just plunge deeper into debt. And at Nehemiah's time, you know, people could sell themselves or sell their kids for a length of time to pay off that debt. Well, you can imagine how people took advantage of that. And, and you know, we always think of this as, oh, that happened long ago. You know, this is still happening today in parts of our world. It's indentured servanthood. You can sell yourself for a part of time, but guess what? That time just never seems like it's ever able to, to get paid off. And so there is and was huge abuses to this. And it all, seen, it all was very unjust. So if you're Nehemiah, the governor, what do you do? You feel angry. Maybe you feel stuck. But one thing that God's can-do people do, how they get more done is that they pray. I know it sounds like a Sunday school answer. But there's not much weight in that. But it's remarkable to me how much prayer is in the book of Nehemiah. If you read through it, it's not a long book, you'll see constantly that there's little prayers, little instances that are coming up. Um, it, and, and it's not like the, the, and now we shall pray, please. It's not these like hugely formal kind of prayer times. It's very, very spontaneous, and I like this. Uh, there's kind of several flavors. The first is that prayer happens as a response to feeling sad, angry, stuck, whatever. Here's an example. In chapter 1, Nehemiah finds out that Jerusalem is still in ruins, and it says, we'll put this on the screen for you, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It's just a matter of fact, and then it moves on to the next thing. In fact, you, if you weren't really looking for it, you might, know, you, you might miss it. Uh, another kind of prayer is that it's just a quick thought. And there's a couple of these. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is when Nehemiah was addressing the king. He's super nervous, and he's just like, then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. This is this quick little thing. Uh, or in chapter 6, verse 9, uh, this is when he was facing violent opposition. It says, but I prayed. He's scared. He's like, Lord, now strengthen my hands. That's it. Uh, sometimes Nehemiah prays for God to see his plight. This happens in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and also in chapter 6, but I'll, I'll point out the one in, in chapter 4. It says, when Sanballat, this was, this was an enemy of Nehemiah's, or an enemy of the people, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And so Nehemiah, in response to this, says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. I really like this example because it illustrates something that I've been working on or really had to work on in the last six months. And it's the difference between praying for things and praying about things. And 
that category isn't mine. It belongs to uh, actually an, a Catholic nun named Marina Wedeker. Pray for things or about things. And as I started to understand what she meant by this, it was like, oh, you know, instead of praying for patience, God, help me be more patient, or praying for peace, or praying for joy, or, or something like that, um, when the Holy Spirit, you know, when you become aware that you're anxious about a particular conversation, a particular deadline, a particular whatever it is, I'm anxious about that, or when you become, uh, you know, there's some issue that you realize is going on in your life, you allow that to point you to God. So you immediately bring it to Him in prayer. Um, you know, like, uh, and I, I was using like anxiety as an example. It could be anger or frustration. It could be uh, any number of things. You start to, pr- when, when the light bulb goes off, like, oh man, I'm really anxious about that, or I'm really angry about that, or I'm really kind of depressed or down about that. You let that turn it back to God. Why? Talk to God about that. And that is so much better um, and actually helps versus saving it all up towards your prayer time some, some day or some other part of your day where you're like, oh God, please help me to be more peaceful. Please help me to be more joyful. I mean, do that, yes. But making progress on those prayers, it's in the moment. And so Nehemiah illustrates this in a number of terms. And... Um, All of these prayers are prayers of a person who wants to depend on God, who allows the stuff of life to turn their thoughts towards God. You know, a person who understands, but for the grace of God. This is the kind of person that I want to be. Prayer doesn't have to be reserved for some special set-off time. I mean, it, it can be. That's good. But it's not only that. It needs to get pressed into the fabric of our day-to-day, minute-to-minute lives. So let your life be immersed in a conversation with God. When the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians, I believe this is what he means. Pray regular. Pray often. Pray constantly for the things happening in your life. That's how doers get more done. Doers get more done by also doing the next right thing. So they get more done by praying. They get more done by doing the next right thing. This is simple, yet so easy to overlook because our our life is complex, especially now. But instead of feeling overwhelmed by everything that we have to do, just do the next right thing. In whatever situation or circumstance that you're facing, that's how doers get more done. Uh, for Nehemiah, what really sets them off is that uh, the, the nobles, the officials in his government, were profiting most um, from kind of the, the struggles of the people. And it says that he pondered this in his mind, meaning he thought it over, and then he called a big meeting together and he accused them. He says, you are charging your own people interest. This was something that was um, forbidden by Jewish law, And 
at the same time, they were making all of the whole nation look terrible. And Nehemiah, I, maybe this came through. He says, he says this in verse 5a. He says, as, as far as we're able, we've, brought, we've bought back our own Jewish kindred who had been sold to other nations, but now you are selling your own kin who must then be bought back. This is like the first example in the Bible of like a government scam, right? It's like, okay, collectively we're purchasing these people back. And then this group of people is selling people back so they can make... And so this is why he's furious. This is why he's angry. But he doesn't let the enormity of it all stop him from doing the next right thing. In our own lives, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the massive undertaking. The, the, I hesitate to call it the, the things that we've made commitments to, the big things in our life. Um, it could be a huge project at school or work. It could be helping a friend or a family member who's going through a really challenging or tough time. Um, you could even uh, you could apply this to like the general big things in our life, like marriage and parenting. You know, like how. How do we help our kids become independent adults who love and serve Jesus? It's this big, huge thing. Just do the next right thing. And whatever that is for you, pray about it. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Nehemiah over and over does this. And for, for him, it meant that he needed to do something really uncomfortable. He needed to confront some very powerful people. And so in verse 9, he says, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And then he says this, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us all stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and houses, and also the interest that you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, and new wine and olive oil. And the crazy thing is, they did it. I kind of wonder if this is why he had to stop and ponder. He's like, oh boy, how much is this going to cost me? And even though it's going to cost him a lot, it doesn't stop him. Because that's what doers do. They do the right thing, even at their own expense. And what Nehemiah is asking everyone to do isn't something he's not willing to do himself And that's what we call leading by example. That's also how doers get more done. Leading by example sounds very straightforward, but why is it so hard for all of us? Maybe I speak for myself, but it always seems so hard. And I wonder if that's not what separates people in leadership positions from people who are actually leaders. It's the willingness to lead by example. And uh, that's what has influence. Actions speak louder than words. And our world isn't short on words, but it could use a few more people who are willing to lead by example. And it might seem awkward or scary or costly at first, but believe me, it gets easier. So Nehemiah, he tells us that for 12 years, he didn't eat the food allotted to the governor. That's like the taxes that he was entitled to. For 12 years, he didn't do it. 
And uh, he says, but out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that, even though previous governors have done it. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, and all my men were assembled there for the work. We didn't acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. All week long, I thought about this whole leading by example. And why is it so hard for, for us to do? And I, it finally dawned on me, it's like, it's all about the motivation. You know, it seems amazing that any, any CEO or politician um, or person in a position of power like Nehemiah um, wouldn't take advantage of opportunities that are just afforded to them naturally. And Nehemiah decides not to do this. Instead, he was very generous, he was very fair. And what would it look like if more of our leaders in our world did that today? But what would it look like if I actually started to do that today? How can I begin to lead by example in my marriage and in my family and in my friendships and, you know, in my workplace, at my church, wherever it is, what, what would it, in my neighborhood, what would it look like if I started to lead by example? And that all begins not just doing what's best for me, but what's best for us. And obviously, Nehemiah's motivation here wasn't to get rich it wasn't to be powerful or comfortable. No, Nehemiah's motivation is what my motivation needs to be. It, it's to do God's will. It's to build God's kingdom. It's to advance God's purposes, to bless others, to help make our society best for all. And I can't think, I can't help but think that's really how doers get more done. It's, it's all about the motivation. Who are you and I doing this for? Is it just for me, myself, and I? Or is it for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors? That's the key. And if we have, if we have that heart, if, if we learn to immerse ourselves in prayer, if, if we just focus on doing the next right thing, if we start to lead by example, man, look out. A lot of things are going to get done for the sake of the Lord and for His purposes, for His people. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of, it doesn't take a lot of us starting to do that to really make an impact in our communities and in our world. And so as we head out this, this week, now we're heading towards celebrating communion. Um, that's just my challenge. It's like, how doers get more done? How, how, can I, how can I start to change the motivation for what I do and make it more in line with God's purposes for my life? Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you and uh, we're humbled. We're humbled by uh, stories in the Bible that we read about people like Nehemiah. Um, we know that they weren't perfect by any means. 
Uh, but the reason their story is in Scripture is because uh, you use them in such powerful ways. And Lord, you use us in powerful ways. You can use us in powerful ways. And they might not seem real big to us at the moment, but they are big to you. So help us to, to pray. The moments that we feel anxious or afraid or nervous, uh, the times that we're frustrated and uh, angry, uh, man, any, any of the things that we encounter just throughout our day, Lord, help us not to feel stuck. Help us to pray. Help us, God, to, um, to do the next right thing and for us to discern what that is if, if, if it isn't apparent. Lord, help us to lead by example and, and to remember not to just ask, act on our own behalf, but to remember um, the needs, to remember the welfare to remember others, Lord. Help us to be those kind of folks. We pray that you would do this through your Spirit's power in our lives, and we pray this in your name.